this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath slavery is a pre modern institution we typically associate it with ancient or medieval times and with regressive societies today when when the idea that all human beings are equal before the law is a matter of common sense almost it is a travesty that millions of people around the world are still entrapped in slavery the united nations recently released a new report by tomoya obokata the special rapporteur on contemporary forms of slavery including its causes and consequences the report will be part of the agenda at the next session of the human rights council in september This report focuses on one particular aspect of contemporary slavery that is how minorities are especially vulnerable to it and what can be done to protect them from falling prey to slavery to explain the implications and recommendations of this report and why slavery continues to persist in different forms even today we have with us dr prabha kotishoran professor of law and social justice at kings college london Dr. Koti Shuren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your invitation. Uh, Dr. Koti Shuren, uh, to start with, the report uses the phrase "contemporary forms of slavery" rather than just slavery. Is there a reason for that? And can you explain briefly what is exactly uh, referred to when we say contemporary forms of slavery? Does this mean new forms of slavery that had not existed before? That's a really good question. Thank you for that. So, actually, as you mentioned in the introduction to this podcast, you know, we think of slavery as a pre-modern phenomenon, and uh, the reason why we use uh, the term contemporary forms of slavery is really to acknowledge the fact that while pre-modern forms of slavery may not exist uh, to the same extent as it did in those times, we still have newer forms. of severe labor exploitation that goes under the term contemporary forms of slavery so slavery and contemporary forms of slavery here are really reflections of the shifts in international law in this area so if you look at the definition of slavery under international law we have to go back to the league of nations convention on slavery of 1926 that said very clearly that slavery is the status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership are exercised uh, and the slave trade was then interpreted as involving you know all acts required for the capture acquisition and disposal of a person with an intent to reduce him to slavery so here really we are thinking of what is also referred to as chattel slavery so you literally think of human beings being auctioned off you know for example during the transatlantic trade in slaves um and of course the 1926 convention sought to you know abolish slavery in all its forms and over time this has been achieved uh, i mean that is not to say that we don't have any chattel slavery at all there are still parts of the world where it does exist but i think what is a more fitting terminology for acknowledging uh, contemporary forms of slavery which may not involve buying and selling of a person is referred to uh, in the report so for this we look to the 1956 convention uh, which is a supplementary convention on the abolition of slavery the slave trade uh, and institutions and practices similar to slavery and here we have different forms of contemporary forms of slavery these include debt bondage 
serfdom, uh, you know, certain forms of forced marriage, which we also see in India, as well as the exploitation of children by their own parents, which, um, you know, is referred to as the sale of children. Right. Uh, debt bondage is, of course, uh, bonded labor is something we do see in India. Moving on, so this report by uh, the UN Special Rapporteur is particularly focused on minorities. So would it be fair to say that it is the minority communities, be it religious, ethnic or linguistic minorities, who are at the greatest risk of being enslaved? And if so, is has this always been the case? Yeah, I think every society has uh, you know, systems for the appropriation of labor that are necessary for its maintenance. I mean, whether it's in terms of meeting its reproductive needs in terms of biological reproduction or the work of social reproduction within the household, which is what, you know, the slaves in uh, ancient in Rome and Greece, you know, you find layers of people who work within the household or whether you, uh, you know, you need labor to earn an income by growing commodities and plantations and agriculture or in manufacturing or now even the gig economy. So pretty much every economic system, whether it's feudalism, capitalism or now post-industrial capitalism in many parts of the world has uh, systems of labor in place which are fundamentally based on structures of inequality um, and exploitation. Uh, And so these systems of production have historically relied on uh, social inequalities and therefore minorities have always been at risk of being subject to Um, you know, extremely exploitative conditions of work. And actually, so the report itself is a very good uh, example of how to think about the role of minorities in these systems of labor exploitation. So the the report actually speaks about various forms of uh, contemporary slavery, but disproportionately high numbers of people from minority groups. Um, and the, the report actually does a very good job of describing why it is that minorities happen to find themselves at the bottom of these uh, economic systems. So, for example, the special rapporteur speaks about how uh, minority communities are disadvantaged from birth by having to take up certain kinds of occupation and how uh, in terms of social mobility, it is limited by the fact that their access to education can be compromised by something as simple as the medium of instruction in the local school and whether they have the ability to you know, be educated uh, because of that reason. If it's a local language, the chances are higher. If it's a foreign language, then it's much harder. He also talks about how access then to decent work is undermined because of the lack of education and how then this produces cycles of poverty that prevents further mobility. And so, in fact, those who are from the marginalized communities end up working in what he calls the informal economy, where you don't have the protections of uh, of labor laws. Now, of course, it's debatable whether in contemporary context, whether those in the formal sector actually have the benefits of labor law, but this is anyway his reasoning. So he actually uses, gives us many examples from around the world of marginalized groups. So, for example, in Yemen, they do waste management work, not unlike in India, workers of African descent who are often found um, working in Brazilian cattle farms or of the Roma who are a nomadic community and how they survive in uh, Croatia. So I think uh, this is actually a very good report in, in terms of highlighting why it is that, you know, minorities end up, you know, being overrepresented in highly exploitative uh, work situations. 
Right. Speaking of minorities being vulnerable, one of the reasons uh, in many cases why a particular community is a minority is, of course, uh, because of migration. And uh, that is another category that this report highlights as being especially vulnerable to contemporary forms of slavery, which is migrant workers. So what is it, in your opinion, uh, makes migrants especially susceptible to enslavement or a form of it? Is it that they do not belong to the destination society, so to speak, and therefore don't have the wherewithal to fight for their rights? Yes, absolutely. I think that is uh, exactly right. I mean, and what we have to acknowledge is just the, you know, the nature of migration today. And I think this is probably what sets apart the contemporary context from potentially earlier periods, although, of course, transnational migration uh, has been a phenomenon for, you know, hundreds of years. But I think it's been particularly accelerated under conditions of globalization where, in fact, you know, migrants you know, fly between different countries very much like, you know, the transport of, of other goods and services, as well as elite workers. Now, their marginalization uh, can be attributable to a combination of uh, conditions, both in the country uh, they come from, which is the source country, as well as the destination country. In the source state itself, you know, their access to livelihood uh, options are likely to be low. They may earn more in the cities or in a different country compared to their level of education, which is why they migrate. Or they may also face discrimination in the local context that they uh, were born in, which is why they would want to exit, you know, that particular economy uh, to go abroad. But of course, you know, traveling internationally is is not something that the poorest can afford. So in fact, a lot of these migrant workers are not the poorest in the community. They have some capital, monetary capital. They also have some social capital, but often have to rely quite heavily on intermediaries to cross borders. And this is a very expensive process. So they often start the game with debt. So they're already starting the game on the back foot. And states actually sometimes make it worse, ironically. You know, states in trying to protect vulnerable communities of migrants may in fact end up, say, banning migration or mobility. So, you know, if you look at Nepal, for instance, over, you know, 15, 20 years, they've banned the migration of women uh, abroad. And the bans can be, you know, country specific in terms of the destination country. It can be sector specific in terms of the kind of work that they do. It can be age specific in terms of, you know, which age group of women can actually travel for work abroad, you know, because there's a presumption that after a certain age, you might be more able to take care of your rights. But of course, these kind of bans, in fact, hurt these women because uh, when you prohibit something, you only make it more expensive. So it means that women then travel with, you know, saddled with greater debt. And of course, once they reach the destination country, you know, and there are quite established migration pathways for this, because there are certain countries whose entire economies rely on remittances from migrants. But of course, once they reach the new country, you find various levels of inequality and discrimination, which are actually baked into the law of the land. Right. Speaking of uh, discrimination, the report says that uh, one of the earliest signs uh, that a minority uh, might be vulnerable to slavery is uh, discrimination. And we, we, I mean, even today, in today's uh, times, we are seeing more and more states which are under the rule of right-wing regimes sort of institutionalizing uh, discriminatory laws or trying to do so, uh, especially against migrants, against minorities uh, through state policies. 
so what is the what is the uh, way out of this kind of a bind that many societies are finding themselves in because even where there doesn't seem to be any kind of institutionalized uh, discrimination even the very uh, even the so called normal processes of naturalization and work permit and so on and so forth which the more well off migrants have to go through even those reek of some kind of racism don't you think Yes, absolutely. I think uh, you know uh, quite importantly. You know, uh, I think like I mentioned, a lot of the so levels of inequality and discrimination are uh, legalized. So you might have very blatantly discriminatory practices where you know migrant workers are not subject to the labor law protections of a particular country, or your visa may actually be tied. to the employer so that if you protested against uh, you know poor working conditions or lack of pay they will actually use the criminal law you know against you and this is not something that only affects uh, you know domestic work uh, it can also affect you know areas like factory work where men are also working and you know apart from these institutionalized forms of racism as you rightly said you also have social discrimination i think this is where there's a very complicated interplay between the law and social practice so i think if you're talking about uh, you know the first step is of course eliminating these discriminatory laws but i think more importantly is to also attack social norms because they seem to be very important you know the treatment of migrants as subhumans you know where they have long hours where they are treated uh, you know don't have uh, adequate sort of living conditions or are subject to abuse are not allowed to go out or where their passport is withheld and so on you know these social norms can become so much a part of daily life that there is a social consensus around it and if there is any employer who tries to be uh, depart from these norms and is uh, you know trying to be humane towards their employee Uh, it breaks the social compact between people of the same class on how you know employers should treat workers so actually it's an uphill struggle in terms of you know rooting out both legal forms of discrimination but also social forms of discrimination but i think social norms also are very malleable so we must always look at how both legal and social forms of discrimination interact and reinforce each other to see you know which can disrupt which uh in the long run right uh, speaking of uh, different uh, kinds of discrimination the report uh, in fact takes pains to clarify that discrimination based on descent does not only refer to race but also caste i mean do you see this as a sign that caste based discrimination is beginning to get a noticed get traction internationally as a major form of discrimination especially given the number of people who are affected by surely by way of population size Yeah absolutely I think this is one of the positive developments actually in international law but also in national laws so I think you know 20 years ago when dalit groups uh, went to durban to the world conference against racism you know they were precisely making this argument that caste should be treated you know as being uh, on par with race and you know and the report actually very nicely tells us that uh, you know the committee on the elimination of racial discrimination has clarified that the term descent in article 1 does not solely refer to race but actually talks about discrimination you know against members of communities based on caste and analogous systems so i think that's a very welcome recognition of how caste travels you know i think uh, given the size of the indian diaspora it's only natural that you know a lot of the problematic social customs uh, of discrimination that uh, are visible in india get entrenched also in the west but we are seeing increasingly that several national laws are beginning to you know there's very robust debates on including caste as an axis of discrimination 
And it's also made its way into the policies of, you know, educational spaces and workplace uh, policies. So I think this is very welcome. And you also begin to see litigation between private parties, you know, who are from different castes, which then will influence, you know, national law. So I think the efforts of Dalit groups, both nationally and internationally, are beginning to uh, materialize in, in law reform. Right. You, you spoke a while back about the effort, uh, especially in the Durban conference by the Dalit groups to sort of try and make the world see casteism and caste in the same light as uh, racism. Uh, but do you think this is likely to happen anytime soon? Because even though there is this recognition where uh, you, you are clarifying, the report clarifies that based on dissent, not only refers to race, but also caste, there still seems to be a long way to go where caste would evoke the same kind of visceral reactions that racism does, especially in Western liberal platforms. Uh, because uh, one, many skeptics would argue that this is not going to happen very time soon simply because caste is not the problem of white people. I think that's probably true to a certain extent, and it's really hard to predict what will happen in the future. But I feel very encouraged by the fact that there's a lot of momentum gathering around this issue. And I think, you know, every case that comes up uh, in a domestic context, you know, like, for example, a domestic worker who made a claim in the UK under the Equalities Act, you know, against caste-based discrimination and won the case. You know, these kinds of cases produce a lot of awareness public awareness about the persistence and the import of the caste system by the Indian diaspora. And that will eventually lead to some kind of reform at the national level, uh, you know, in the UK and, you know, potentially um, in the US. Again, there is litigation around, you know, Indian workers and temples being paid less than the minimum wage. You know, so I think we're at a point where groups are willing to you know, go to court to, you know, assert their rights. And I think there's also a lot of visibility of Dalit groups in the West. I think there is a lot of visibility of cultural forms uh, which are being appropriated and refashioned to, you know, raise awareness of, you know, uh, casteism and to reclaim dignity uh, for the injustices of the past. And there's a very strong movement internationally for for reparations, you know, in relation to, to you know, uh, uh, racial slavery, there's been an incredible amount of literature on racial capitalism. To take an example, uh, just to clarify a little bit more on what I was getting at, like uh, you spoke about, uh, you know, the different kinds of uh, cases being made, you know, especially between private parties on uh, caste discrimination. But if you take a platform like, like this UN uh, report on this particular subject, contemporary slavery, it makes extended references to uh, bonded labor. It makes references to child marriage, but the fact that both bonded labor and child marriage in the country where they are most widespread are actually deriving from caste, there is absolutely no reference to it. There is no uh, awareness or acknowledgement of caste as part of this matrix of problems of slavery, so to speak. So, I mean, from that point of view, how do you see this developing? Yeah, I think this is a really good first step. You know, the fact that the report is talking about caste as reflected in, in bonded labor systems. I think and the reality, unfortunately, is that although we have excellent laws in India itself on the Bonded Labor System Abolition Act you know, of the 1970s, the problem is that the larger wave of anti-slavery laws uh, you know, internationally, you know, such as uh, targeting trafficking. So, you know, although the report is on contemporary forms of slavery, uh, you know, many of the, both the, the special rapporteur on contemporary forms of slavery works in tandem with the special rapporteur on trafficking. And the momentum there is really in terms of targeting trafficking and criminalizing trafficking. So one of the worst 
things about the trafficking uh, discourse is that although the anti-trafficking discourse has brought, uh, it has made visible various forms of exploitation, also called modern slavery, uh, the problem is that uh, from a legal perspective, what it does is the emphasis on the criminal law overshadows other uh, more indigenous ways of trying to understand and address issues of bonded labor as a facet of caste-based discrimination. So if you have, you know, a Bonded Labor Act that actually has an administrative law system that at the very local level, you know, has a range of remedies to make sure that locally people understand that this kind of caste-based discrimination and bonded labor is illegal, we are not actually using the law that we have and using it to generate awareness about bonded labor and caste discrimination. Instead, we are focusing too much on, you know, using the police to target, uh, you know, trafficking. So I think it's unfortunate, although we have a vocabulary for understanding caste-based discrimination in the context of bonded labor and contemporary forms of slavery, we have an overlapping discourse around trafficking, which is actually undermining uh, a focus on caste. So I think that is that is really unfortunate. But I think the fact that the special rapporteur has spoken about caste in the report, I think, is a is a welcome move. And for us, an opportunity for some introspection uh, in the Indian context. Right. Uh, you just uh, spoke briefly about uh, the excesses of criminalizing uh, the problem here. And uh, this is going to be my final question because we're running out of time. So coming to the last section of the report, which is on recommendations, the report wants uh, nation states to take legislative steps to eliminate discrimination against minorities and also wants civil society organizations to strengthen legal and financial assistance for victims and survivors. So how practical do you think are these uh, recommendations in the report, uh, given the current climate of extreme polarization and uh, sort of quasi-authoritarian regimes in many democracies as well? Is it likely that they're going to be uh, easy to execute? No, I think these problems, you know, given just the, you know, the the fact that we've been talking about slavery and contemporary forms of slavery, uh, reaching into decades and centuries, I think, uh, you know, we have to think about a range of solutions in the long term and in the short term. But I think there are some positive developments that the report, you know, speaks about. For example, the rollback of the Kafana system, which nobody would have imagined would be possible a few years ago. So the special rapporteur speaks about its rollback in certain countries. Uh, he talks about the temporary recognition of migrant workers and creating pathways to citizenship, all of which can make us feel hopeful. But I think some of his comments on the laws of on supply chain accountability, for instance, uh, do not resonate at all, uh, because I think these laws are not robust at all. Right now, most of the supply chain laws are focused on transparency. So some kind of self-reporting by corporations on forced labor in their supply chains rather than any um, you know, hard sanctions on corporations. Similarly, he refers to bilateral agreements between states as potentially, you know, uh, helping the cause of migrant workers. But a lot of bilateral agreements, if you really scratch the surface, you find that they're really body shopping. You know, source countries and destination countries are actually body shopping in their own citizens. And actually, you know, despite having provisions such as you know, the Filipino government, for example, requires that a certain minimum wage be paid to their migrant workers. This is actually not observed at all. So, of course, the, you know, the report has lots of non-controversial kind of recommendations, which are welcome, you know, has to do with education, public services and so on. Nobody would really 
argue against it. But then he also has some recommendations which are highly unrealistic. So, for example, talking about granting permanent residency to migrants or regularizing irregular working arrangements or having equality laws or labor laws where minorities and migrants are on par with everyone else. I think for the reasons that you've mentioned uh, around authoritarian governments, but also you know, the power of capitalist uh, firms, you know, this would go, any of these measures would go directly against uh, the political and economic status quo so dramatically that I don't think there would be any major changes here because, you know, states and businesses thrive on inequality. So I think, uh, you know, this is this is quite unlikely. But what the other thing that worries me about his recommendations are, you know, there are certain recommendations that actually suggest a somewhat simplistic understanding of third world realities. So, for example, he repeatedly talks about, you know, needing to formalize the informal economy. And this has, of course, been the line of the ILO for a very long time, where the informal economy is viewed as a problem and formalizing as a solution. So, of course, I don't want to take an either or position on this, but I think we need to understand that informality actually also benefits workers and trying to formalize in a top-down fashion can actually cause more harm than good. So I think we just need to probe uh, the rapporteur's recommendations on formalization and what kind of formalization um, you know, should uh, should be seen in labor markets. I think similarly, things like uh, comments on child marriage, for example, you know, assumes the international sort of bright line around, you know, uh, a person becomes an adult the minute they turn 18. And, you know, even domestic kind of proposals to, you know, increase the age of marriage, I think have been shown to have unintended consequences that will actually hurt, you know, girls more than than help them. So I think these are all things that, you know, we need to kind of take uh, with a pinch of salt. And I would actually uh, argue that there are some innovations from the Indian context that the special rapporteur might also consider, things like the implementation of the Mandrega uh, laws, you know, which have actually proven to reduce caste-based discrimination by simply creating economic alternatives, you know, for people uh, from lower castes in the villages, uh, as well as laws such as Interstate Migrant Workmen's Act, which are very, uh, can be transported to the international level uh, in quite a meaningful manner. Right. I think uh, that is all we have time for uh, for this episode, Dr. Kodishuran. I mean, I would urge anybody who is listening, uh, everybody who is listening to this uh, episode to sort of go and uh, check out the actual report. It makes for a sobering read. And unfortunately, of course, I mean, even though minorities are uh, susceptible to being entrapped into slavery, that is actually only the final stop in the long journey that begins with discrimination. And many societies today are uh, seeing minorities at that particular juncture as well, where they are beginning to face all kinds of discrimination, which then progressively escalates. And finally, you have a stage where huge uh, populations are living in conditions that could be likened to a contemporary form of slavery. Dr. Kodishwaran, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and comments on the UN Special Rapporteur's report. A pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.